Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, and welcome to our podcast interview on understanding federal litigation. This is the Immigration Advocates Network. My name is Pat Malone, and I'm the moderator today. We're very pleased to welcome Trina Realmuto, Directing Attorney at the Boston Office of the American Immigration Council. Trina, welcome, and please tell us a little bit about what you're working on and your background in federal litigation. Sure. Um, Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be on this podcast talking about litigation. My background is um, in immigration litigation. I've been doing this for uh, roughly 20 years. Um, And I started off at a firm. Um, I also did some work consular processing for a while. I have worked with uh, two national nonprofit immigrant rights organizations, uh, including the one that I'm currently working for, the American Immigration Council. And my job is mostly, like, I would describe myself as a team litigator. I am on several uh, litigation teams on a variety of topics, from class actions to FOIA cases to an individual case here and there. Um, I, I do that as well as things like I'm doing today with you, presentations. Um, our organization does advisories, practice advisories to attorneys in the field, And as well, um, I do a bit of assistance to attorneys on strategy and litigation strategies and uh, parts of immigration law they have some expertise in. Great. Thanks. So let's start out with an overview of federal court structure. Well, I think that there's sort of two ways to look at the federal court structure. There's the way that uh, you learn in law school which is there's the trial level, there's the appellate level, and then there's, like, the Supreme Court. And I'm talking now about, you know, basically both systems, right, because the state system is sort of like the federal system in that sense, the three-tiered levels. Um, But because we're in immigration and exclusively federal law, when we're talking about federal court litigation, we're always talking about um, those three same courts, district court, the Court of Appeals, and uh, the Supreme Court. But that's so that's the federal court system, right? That's the generic federal court system. But when we're talking about um, immigration, for practitioners who do removal defense, they know that sort of before you get to the federal court, there's sort of the immigration court system, which consists of, I think it's something like 59 immigration courts around uh, the country and one appellate body called the Board of Immigration Appeals that sits in Falls Church, Virginia. And when cases go through that system, they um, skip over the district court when they're when they're getting review. But I think we can talk about that as as we go through. But just generally, I feel like the the court structure for most people is going to sound very familiar to what everybody learned in law school. All right. So can we talk about where, where does a challenge start? And I know this depends on the type of case, but can you give us a sense of uh, what we might see among immigration practitioners and then also among litigants who are challenging a federal policy? Sure. I'd be happy to. And um, for some folks, I think this might be an overview, but I think it's a really important overview. 
where you sort of start your, your challenge is, is definitely going to depend on what you're challenging, um, whether you're challenging an order, um, a practice, what, what you're seeking in through your litigation. So, for example, as I was mentioning, the Immigration Courts and the Board of Immigration Appeals, those two entities collectively are called the Executive Office for Immigration Review. And in the normal course of things, a person would have an order from an immigration judge that gets appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. And once the board rules, assuming they're ruling against your client or not in the non-citizen's favor, the, the way that the system is set up, that the law is set up, the person would then go on what's called a petition for review um, of the board's order to the Court of Appeals. So they would skip over district court if they have a EOIR order and go straight to the Court of Appeals on a petition for review. So if you're challenging EOIR order, so that's an order that comes through the, the immigration court system, then you go to the Court of Appeals on a petition for review, you litigate there, and then your next stop would be the Supreme Court. Um, if you're challenging a DHS-issued order, that that sort of brings to mind uh, four types of orders. There's, there's reinstatement orders. There are orders under INA Section 238B for folks who are alleged to have been convicted of an aggravated felony but not have LPR, lawful permanent resident, status. There are also sort of visa waiver program orders under INA Section 217. Those types of orders go just like an EOIR order to the Court of Appeals on petition for review. Now, the fourth type of DHS-issued order, an expedited removal order, that's more difficult. If someone is challenging that, there are some severe restrictions on um, on habeas review for those types of cases. It's very, very complicated, and, um, you know, we sort of don't suggest people kind of go it alone for expedited removal challenges. So that's sort of the final order challenge. But if somebody is challenging, let's say, an issue related to their detention, for example, they think they should be eligible for bond or they think there's something about their uh, detention that is unlawful, those types of cases are generally brought in the district court and um, there is through, through a habeas petition. Now, there may be other types of jurisdictional bases attached to those types of cases, but they're generally sort of thought of as, hey, you go to district court um, on a habeas if you're challenging a policy or something specific to the individual's detention. And if you lose there, then you can appeal to the Court of Appeals and so on to the Supreme Court. Um, for example, there was a lot of litigation. There has been a lot of litigation largely brought by the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project that deals with things like um, there was a case actually uh, out of the Ninth Circuit that deals with challenging the consideration of ability to pay. So whether or not somebody with a bond proceeding should be able to um, say, hey, I don't have uh, this amount of money. You have to give me a reasonable bond, a lower bond, 
that you have to factor in my ability to pay into the bond amount that I am given. So, like, that's a, sort of a hybrid, that's like a policy challenge, but it relates to detention. And that, of course, is, was brought through habeas. Similarly, folks like in the Northwest Immigrants Rights Project and elsewhere, um, ACLU have brought challenges to um, the government's interpretation of who's eligible for bond, um, arguing things like if, if the person was released um, and there was a break in the continuity of, of custody between criminal custody and immigration custody, those folks shouldn't be subject to sort of mandatory detention. They should be eligible for bond. Again, that kind of case, that sort of detention-related case, go channels through habeas um, at the district court. And then lastly, to get to your question, Pat, policy challenges, so things like the challenges to the travel ban that we saw, things like, um, for example, I'm involved in, in two national class actions. One is challenging the government's lack of notice and lack of meaningful mechanism um, for filing an asylum application within the one-year filing deadline. So um, it's a challenge to the DHS's failure to give notice of that deadline and, and sort of the EOIR and DHS's um, ability to uh, provide a, a valid mechanism to, to file those applications. Or something like the other case I'm involved in is like a challenge to the extreme vetting program used by USCIS um, to screen out certain types of applications under the, the CARP program, which usually disproportionately affects Muslim men from Southeast Asian nations. So those type of like challenges to, to a policy of the administration will, um, by and large, start in district court. That's where all of these cases started and are. Um, they, they may have a habeas component, but they may be multi-claim sort of type cases. And, you know, they can't be of a class or they can be filed on behalf of an individual but seek injunctive relief, if that makes sense. I just wanted to clarify that the circuit court is the same as the Court of Appeals. Oh, I apologize. Yes, it is. Thank you. So what can the district court do? Once you're in district court, what can you seek? What kind of relief or protections or decisions can the district court make? So generally, that's a great question. Generally, um, there are sort of two types of relief, but the way I sort of think about it, there's declaratory relief where you're asking the court to declare a policy or a law or an interpretation invalid um, as violative of either some type of statutory regulatory law or violating the Constitution. Um, and then there's also injunctive relief, and that's where you're asking the court to order some type of action. So, I mean, as the term sort of describes, right, there's a declaration of that what's happening is wrong, or there's injunctive relief where you're asking the court to take some type of action. And I think the declaratory relief that they can order is fairly straightforward. And then when you get into injunctive relief, I think that there are sort of 
like that's where you're starting to calculate like the strategy in the litigation because sometimes an issue is so urgent. For example, you're trying to, um, you know, get somebody um, some type of immediate relief because there's an urgent reason that they need the court to, to rule. And then in that situation, you would be asking for injunctive relief, but it would be sort of early on in the case in the form of, for example, a temporary restraining order. Um, or you might choose to ask the court before the end of the case to order some type of injunctive relief, and it's usually called a preliminary injunction, um, asking the judge to sort of do something to, to help your client or your class um, or your clients, plural. And then when you get into that, asking the district court for that kind of relief, you're sort of also having to calculate in your head, hey, am I asking the judge to do something that sort of preserves the status quo? Or am I asking the judge to take a step, to take an action that is really kind of connected to the ultimate action that I'm seeking or relief that I'm seeking in the case? Um, and so that's sort of a calculation about what kind of, if you want to ask for injunctive relief early on and what kind of relief you want to ask for. But that's just generally the type of, of you know, remedy that you can get from a district court in these types of policy cases. Of course, you can file like a damages case or a FOIA case. And, you know, there you're asking for, for example, in FOIA, the production of documents or damages, you're asking for, you know, money and or injunctive relief. Thank you. So if the court issues an order or an injunction, where does that order apply? So the order will apply based on the level of the court or the scope of the order. So there's no sort of easy answer to that uh, question because it really depends on what case you've brought. Um, but let me sort of flesh that out a little bit. If we're in the immigration system outside of federal court, and the Board of Immigration Appeals issues the decision or if the Attorney General certifies a case to himself and issues the decision. Those decisions are binding nationally in the absence of contrary circuit or Supreme Court precedent. Okay? So that sort of means that might be fine if you know, oh, there's this board decision that holds XYZ. But if you want to know if that decision applies and is binding and valid, you have to ask yourself the second question, which is, has the circuit, the relevant circuit court made a ruling about that board case? Like, have, mm. have they affirmed it or have they vacated it? The interesting other piece about this um, that I want to throw out there is that those board decisions, those attorney general decisions, um, are also, if they are precedent-published decisions, they're also binding on Department of Homeland Security officers um, pursuant to a regulation at 8 CFR 103.10b, which says, hey, if it's a binding BIA decision, DHS, you're bound to follow it. It's kind of, a, I feel like, a helpful thing for folks to know. I, I want to also get to the level of the, the court issue when you're saying, sort of asking the question, where does an order apply? I think that court cases that 
if it is an individual case, the district court's order is binding just on the individual's case, and um, it doesn't bind anyone else but but the litigant before the court. And the Board of Immigration Appeals actually issued a decision in matter of KS back in 1993 sort of saying exactly that, like, hey, we're not bound to follow um, a district court decision. That's only binding on the litigants. Now, of course, if there's a district court decision and it gets appealed to the Court of Appeals or the Circuit Court, and that be- that that issue in that case becomes a precedent circuit court decision, that will be binding, that law that comes out of it will be binding on the entire circuit if if that's where the case stops. Of course, anything that goes up to the Supreme Court is binding nationally. Um, the other sort of factor that you have to look at when you're trying to figure out, you know, where does an order apply um, you have to look at the scope of the order and the nature of the case. So, for example, if it's a class action case, then the district court's order will apply only to the certified class. So you have to look at the class definition. Is this a certified class that is limited to um, a geographical area? Is it... um, national in scope, so it applies to everybody everywhere, or is it limited to people who are detained in, you know, XYZ detention centers, or is it, you know, limited to people within the circuit or the district? Um, So class action cases, those orders only act upon um, folks who meet the definition of the class that's been certified. an individual case, usually, like I said, it's usually just on that particular litigant, but if you're asking for an injunctive relief that can have national impact, for example, like in the travel ban cases, if you are saying enjoin um, this national policy on behalf of these plaintiffs, and if the district court does that and has enjoined the national policy as to like as we saw in the travel ban, um, as to a broad scope, just sort of saying that don't let these provisions apply, you know, that had a, you know, a national impact. It, you know, those types of cases are, are I'd say, more rare, um, but they can happen. And in order to figure out, you know, who the order acts on, you've actually got to look at the language of the order and the scope of the order at issue. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, so what what happens when different district courts issue different orders on the same subjects, for example, the travel ban? Yeah, um, that's a great question, and I'd say that that happens a lot on all types of issues. A lot of times in the detention context, when uh, one district court will say, oh, well, I'm going to read the detention provision about this, you know, this way, and Another one will say, I'll, I'll read it a different way, and it results in one person getting a bond hearing and the other person not. Or, um, you, know, you know, I guess less so in, in the travel ban cases, but any kind of national challenge like that in, in many districts, um, not all judges are going to see things you know, the same way. Um, but it doesn't – it sort of – 
doesn't, like I was saying before, you have to look at what the orders act on. It happens pretty frequently in individual cases, and since the district court's order in an individual case only acts against that individual, it's okay that there's lots of different um, decisions on the same topic. Like sometimes in the same district court jurisdiction, you might have two judges that um, rule favorably on an issue related to immigration and one judge that doesn't, or five that do, and one that doesn't. Like, it doesn't, it's it's not uncommon. I mean, it's not great, but it's not uncommon. I think that, like, it's more of an issue, becomes more of an issue when you have different circuits or different courts of appeals um, deciding issues differently. Because when you have you know, those Basically, there are 11 circuits that hear immigration cases. When there is a split among the circuits, that is when an issue sort of becomes ripe for Supreme Court review, right? The Supreme Court is not going to hear, as we know, every immigration case. They're going to hear immigration cases that are of like national importance, for example, like the travel ban, or where there's a split in the circuits and they don't agree on how to resolve a question of law, at that point, it becomes sort of a what we call a ripe circuit split, and that means ripe for Supreme Court review. Okay, so if the litigant or the party doesn't like the district court order, what are the options? Uh, depending on the order, there are a couple options that I can think of. I mean, they have a mechanism whereby um, you can ask for reconsideration of the district court's order. There is, of course, the ability to appeal a district court order to the court of appeals. And if the, you know, an appeal is filed, the other party has the opportunity to file a cross appeal, which means both parties are appealing, and there's also the option of not appealing. There's no obligation to appeal a district court order, and the fact, you know, it, it's very case-specific, and obviously the, the most important consideration is what does your client want to do um, when it comes to appealing. Um, so I think what is hard for a lot of us to follow is when there are these injunctive orders and those are challenged. Can you talk about how the motions and orders by reviewing courts may proceed while waiting for the district court to decide the underlying issue? Yeah, yeah it's confusing. I think that you you sort of become familiar with this, that whole process, the more litigation you do. But but basically what I interpret your question to be sort of asking about is the kind of the concept of an interlocutory appeal, which is an appeal that is is going up to the court to the court of appeals, usually the circuit court, um, before there's a final resolution of the case in district court. And that is most common in two in two types of scenarios. One is when you are talking about injunctions. So injunctions, um, a party can seek an interlocutory appeal 
of an injunction that the judge has granted, has continued, has modified, has refused, dissolved, or refused to dissolve or modify. Like when it comes to injunctions, those are ripe for um, interlocutory appeals, and you can take them up. And, and often, oftentimes, the parties will say, "Well, let's stay." the proceedings before the district court, let's put them on hold while we go up and litigate this issue related to an injunction. Then the other sort of most common way that this sort of happens is when a party says to the district court, hey, I think this is a really important issue to my case. Um, Please, can you find that it involves a controlling question of law um, for which, you know, there's a difference of opinion and if we file an appeal now, that can, you know, ad- you know, advance the ultimate termination of the litigation. And usually, like for cases where the district court judge certifies uh, the right to file an interlocutory appeal, if you will, you know, usually it's on a, a question that is going to, if you resolve it early on, is going to affect the rest of the case. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but in this kind of category of cases that can be interlocutorily appealed, there's things like a judge's decision saying, like, uh, denying qualified immunity to uh, an officer in, like, a damages context. And and, and in that situation, like, the person would say, hey, I want to go to the court of appeals now because I don't want to go through this whole trial and figure out if I'm liable if, in fact, like, qualified immunity would take me out of the case um, from the get-go. We've also seen sort of sometimes class cert um, orders can go – you know, the government will seek an interlocutory appeal if, if a class is certified, and they will try to argue that it shouldn't be. But usually, those sort of wait, in my experience, wait till the end of litigation. Doesn't have to though. Um, but you know, the, the general idea or the general you know thing here is that um, the, the the whole concept behind interlocutory appeals is like trying to get the court of appeals to weigh in early. Um, because you think that if they weigh in early on whatever the issue is, that might affect um, the ultimate resolution of the case, if that makes sense. Hmm. Well, thank you, Trina. I wanted to check and see if there was anything else you'd like to mention before we talk about where people can look for more information. Um, I, I guess I would just sort of say for anybody that's out there that is trying to think about entering the world of federal court litigation, I would encourage you to do so. Some of this stuff sounds complicated, and there's a lot of um, lingo that goes with it, but we really do need more immigration attorneys that are going to take cases and issues to federal court in a really responsible way. And so I would just make a pitch for folks to um, perhaps get out of their comfort zone and try this on a, you know, on a first case and one at a time basis until they, um, you know, delve into this and become experts. And so for folks who want to follow the latest developments and current litigation, uh, what do you have over mm-hmm. at the American Immigration Council and other sites? Sure. Um so a couple places that I think that interested litigators might you know, want to know about 
um, just to read up on what's happening and um, and maybe try it. So there's, you know, the American Immigration Council has um, Immigration Impact, which is a blog where we are blogging on um, kind of current immigration-related events, some of them, um, sorry, immigration events, some of them litigation-related. We have information on our website that is generated by our policy and research center that has things like fact sheets and um, research reports related to happenings in immigration, but specifically kind of um, honing in on litigation there are uh, there is a new project, the Immigration Justice Campaign, um, where um, this campaign is signing up pro bono attorneys to take cases of detained individuals, and, and they have a lot of resources and support that they can provide trainings and materials and assistance to attorneys that um, participate in the Immigration Justice Campaign. And I encourage you to go to our website, and it's a um, joint project with the Immigration Lawyers Association to take a look at that project called the Immigration Justice Campaign and the benefits of participating in it, um, as well as sort of joining listservs like the ALA Federal Court Litigation Listserv or the ACLU has a listserv. Um, Dan Kowalski runs a listserv that has people who do this type of work kind of talking to each other and asking each other questions um, about strategies and um, the law, so that's a helpful resource for folks to know about. But also, I want to make a plug for anybody that is doing this work to to make sure that they look at the EOIR website, and um, there you can go to the Virtual Law Library, and you can actually subscribe to updates for, uh, from the Board of Immigration Appeals that will generate um, an email whenever there's a precedent decision um, issued by the board, because we all want to stay up to date on case law. That is important to us, and so you can do that. And then similarly, most courts of appeals have an RSS feed, which allows um, an email to be generated to recipients about current cases, that current published decisions the circuit has issued. And it's really quite easy to identify the immigration cases. You, you sort of look for verse sessions in the title, um, and you know, and, and some of the feeds will identify them as immigration cases or agency cases. And then you can read about what the court in your circuit has decided, which is really obviously important to know because that circuit law is going to, to trump any board decision in your circuit, and it's going to be binding law. So, you know, I, I would just sort of encourage folks to take a look at at those resources um, that I just mentioned and then get in touch with people and sort of join a community, like find your tribe of people who are doing this work because it really does take um, a village to do it. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, this is a conversation with Trina Realmuto. She's directing attorney at American Immigration Council's Boston office. Thank you so much for joining us, Trina. Thank you for having me.